We start a new sermon series today, Words from the Cross. We'll be talking about the next several weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter weekend, just what it means to hear what Jesus said to us as he was on the cross and how those words impact our lives. Words always impact our lives. The rest of our service today, we'll be walking through this message, and then at the conclusion, we'll actually share the Lord's Supper together uh, as a corporate kind of way, and then a song to end the service with our choir, and then we'll sing together at the end. So we have a ways to go yet. But as we talk about this understanding of the words from the cross and what Jesus has said to us, so as I said, for the next several weeks, we'll be looking at that and understanding what those words say, because words are very important. And we know what some words are and what they speak to us and what they say to us. For example, if I said, we the people, you would recognize where that comes from. You would recognize the importance that is to our culture and to our nation. If I said, uh, I have a dream, you would recognize that great sermon and who said that and what that has done for the civil rights movement and injustice across our nation over these past 50 plus years. If I were to say, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, you might recognize that statement and be able to say, oh yeah, I know what that means to us and how that's, how that's so important in our life. You might remember the statement that came in September 9-11 from Tom Beamer, who was on that flight heading toward the Pentagon or the Capitol or wherever it was going, uh, maybe even the White House, when they were going through Pennsylvania, and he got a group of guys who were willing to storm the front of the plane to take that plane down that was, that was headed that direction. His last words on the telephone call to his family, they heard him say, let's roll. And so those last words are powerful in anybody's relationship. Maybe you remember those from someone special in your family, maybe a parent or uh, someone who had those last words that they spoke into your life even before their death. And so over these next several weeks, that's what we're talking about. We're looking at these words of Jesus and how they do and what they are and how important they are into our lives as he spoke these words from the cross. We get to the first one today, which is found in this Luke passage, Luke chapter 23. That should be either in your listening guide today or in the Bible that you have in front of you or on your phone or on your app, whatever you're using today, that you could find this important verse and that is known as the first of Jesus' sayings. Maybe he was not even in place yet on the cross. He was definitely on the cross. The nails had already been in his hand and in his feet. Whether the cross was raised up or not at this point is some debatable issue, not really important from that perspective because Jesus was on the cross. He was there. He was already in that place where he was willing to pay for your sin and mine. And today, the focal point of this whole verse is the idea of forgiveness, that theme of of how he desires to forgive us of our sin, to change us, to cleanse us, to make us right with him. And that that is the greatest thing we get to talk about. That is the greatest joy that we have to be able to talk about salvation being in Christ, about our sin and the fact that he has forgiven us or can forgive us, cleanse us. To make us right with him. So this morning, our, our goal is really to walk through this verse and to be able to see these key words of this verse and really what it speaks and what it says to us as Jesus was there hanging on the cross. As we begin this uh, conversation, the first thing we want to look at, the first part of this is the understanding that Jesus begins his last assignment. And the first thing I want us to see, and you can write those in your listening guide today, is when the worst had been accomplished. Jesus begins his assignment when the worst 
has been accomplished. What do we mean by that? Well, in this verse, it starts out by using this little conjunction with the word then. That is in the the Greek text, actually. Some translations may not put it there, but it is there. And that conjunction has to do with the fact that it, it connects everything that's happening in the future to what has happened in, in the past. And if you were to look at the immediate past, what Jesus has gone through in the last 36 to 24 hours, you begin to recognize that, that everything that he has gone through is the worst that you can possibly imagine. Now, you know the story, or at least some of you do. You know the story that Jesus had come to that place as he had been living on this earth, that he had been doing ministry now for 33 years, that his ministry for the last three years had been an, an open ministry among the people. He had lived here 33 years, ministry the last three. And in that, he had, he had done so many things, right? He had, he had healed people. He had, he had turned water into wine as his first miracle. He had, he, had, he had given food for people to eat. He had done so many things. He didn't raise people from the dead, right? I mean, he, he had done so many things. And so, now, as we get into this passage, as we begin to say, well, then, then what? Then, after he had done all these things, he was rejected. He was told that he was the king of the Jews in a laughing kind of way. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious people of the day decided that they were good not and would not stand for Jesus to be called Messiah or God. So they began the process under the sovereignty of God himself, began the process of putting Jesus on the cross so that he might die for our sin. So in that process, you might recall that the Bible teaches us that he went before Herod, he went before Pilate. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him. But at the same time, the people were screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. So, so they ended up giving a, a known murderer, Barabbas, back to the people so that Jesus would still be crucified. Because why? Because he had claimed to be God. He had told the people that he was the Messiah, and there were some who were following him, and there was this uprising among both the Jewish people that, of course, he, he was not the Messiah. They should have known better because they had all the Old Testament evidence pointing to him. But then there was the Romans who didn't necessarily want someone to cause a problem, and so they were willing to put him to death too. So this backstory of the then, when we get to this word that he uses, then, after all these things that have happened, after Jesus had been beaten with a whip to the point of almost death, after Jesus had had a, a bloody back and destroyed by, by his physical appearance, as he had the cross laid on him that he tried to carry up to Calvary, but as the Bible would teach us, he wasn't even able to do that. He didn't have the strength to do that, that had someone else carry that for him. And as he was walking through that, you remember those different scenarios where they would, where they would put the robe of purple on him. And, then, and you know with all the blood on his back, it was, it was sticking to him. So when they ripped it off, you, could just, you just can imagine what that did to the flesh. You know, the part where they, they took the, a thorn, a crown of thorns, and they put it not just gently on his head, but they put it down into his skull. And you can imagine the blood that was coming out of that and all that was happening inside that. And then they, they were doing all those things to him to get him to this place where they laid him on the cross and the Bible would teach us clearly, as does history, not just the Bible, but history would say that the Romans, when they crucified someone, would lay them out flat and they would drive nails into their hands. That happened to Jesus. It's hard for us to even imagine. We can't imagine the torture, the hurt, the struggles, the problems. But the understanding that he did that for our sin becomes even heavier for us. It becomes a weighted matter for us. And so Jesus did those things. And, and Luke writes, it was after the worst 
that you can imagine. It was after the worst things that had already been done to him, the worst had already been accomplished. Here he was on the cross. And then the second thing that we see is from this word that Jesus speaks. He says something, that first word that he gives from the cross. And he said this, that he was, he was praying. So for the very first thing, the first thing we see is with this assignment, he begins with a heart of prayer. Can you imagine Jesus, Jesus praying, Jesus on the cross, Jesus praying to the Father. Well, that didn't seem really unimaginable to us because usually what happens to us when we get in trouble, what do we do? We pray first, right? That's the first place we want to do or sometimes maybe even the last place we want to go to. But somewhere in the process, it gets us that place as believers where we are, we are praying. We want, to, we want to come to God about this. Jesus starts there. This first word from the cross is, Father, forgive them. This, for, this first word that he says is an understanding that he wants people to understand that he is praying to the Father. Now, Jesus starts his ministry. He starts back over in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when Luke says that when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water and the dove ascended on him. And the scripture says, as he was praying. So from the beginning of his ministry to this moment on the cross, Jesus lived in a heart of prayer. What does that say to us? It says to us that our hearts should be hearts that are turning to prayer constantly. The only thing that we have to, to help us in our survival mode of life is prayer, that God desires our prayers. God wants us to have a heart of prayer. God wants us to be people who are praying. In this case, Jesus was praying for his enemies, first of all. He was, he was praying that his enemies those who had put him on the cross may have forgiveness. Now, most of the time, we are not real good about praying for our enemies, especially in this same way. You see, Jesus, when he starts this prayer, it's not focused on him. Usually, when I start my prayer of my needs, it's, Lord, help me to do this. Or, Lord, give me wisdom. Or, Lord, I need this. Or, Lord, help me with this. Yet, Jesus doesn't focus on himself at all. He says, Father, forgive them. Let me see my enemies, those people who have put me on the cross. That gives us a great understanding that, that, one, we are to be praying for our enemies. We are to pray for those who persecute us. The Bible teaches us that. And first and foremost, maybe, that's what we should be about, praying for those who need to see who Jesus is, because that was really his prayer here. That was really what he was doing. He was praying that they might recognize that he is the king of glory, that they might recognize that he is bringing to them salvation in a way that they could not understand. Yet the Bible has brought us salvation that we understand because we have the timing to look back, to read it, to see the history, to know what God's word might speak into, their, into our lives. But Jesus begins by that prayer time, and that prayer is not only focused on his enemies, not only focused on not himself at all, not his, his focus on his enemies, but he's helping us to understand that when we sin, our sin is not against other people. Oh, sometimes it is. And our sin is not against what's going on around us, and yet there's a part of that. But Jesus makes it clear in this verse, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that sin is against God. Your sin and my sin 
It is against God. That's why David cried out in the Old Testament, God, my sin is ever before you. God, it's my sin that is before you. It's my sin that's before God. And so our sin, sometimes though we think we sin against other people and we do this wrong against other people, first and foremost, our sin is against God. And that is so important for us to understand because when we recognize our sin is against God, it allows us, one, to see that we are guilty, but it allows us to see that God has provided great forgiveness for our sin. God has already done the work through Christ to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John tells us that that's what he does. So if we have sinned against God and our sin is against him, we begin to understand that because of our sin against him, that God is inter- intervening in our life in such an important way that allows us to come to him. And so we hear Jesus saying, Father. And that's the third thing that we want to look at today. The third part of this, that Jesus begins his last assignment with dependence upon the Father. Well, oftentimes our dependence is on a lot of things. Jesus had the strength, the power, the capacity, whatever you want to call it, to come off the cross at any time he wanted. He was God. He had healed people. We had seen that. He had raised people from the dead. We had seen that in Lazarus. He had been able to provide food for the 5,000 and many others. He had been doing miracles for the last three years. Could he have the power to do what he wanted to do in that scenario? Yes, he could. He had that kind of power and that kind of strength because he is God. But yet his dependence was not on his authority or on his power. His dependence was on the Father, which should teach us a whole lot. It should teach us that our dependence is not on our ability, on what we can do, on how smart we are, on how much resources we have, but our dependence becomes upon the Father. The Father word that he used here is a term of endearment, a term of love, a term of family. He could have used a lot of words, right? He could, he could have said, God, creator. He could have called on God, Yahweh. He could have called on the, the Lord of power, He could have gone back to the Old Testament and pulled out several different Hebrew words that would recognize God in a completely different way. He could have done that, but he didn't. He used the word father. It was that family. Now, inside that word, there are two things that become very important inside that word father that he uses. One was love. The word love comes out of this father relationship. God knew how much he loved the world. The Bible says that he loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. So the word love becomes a, a big part, a huge part of this understanding of Father. So when, when Jesus says, when he says Father, he is acknowledging the love of God. He is acknowledging the love of God that brings salvation into your life. He is acknowledging the word of God that makes everything new and complete. He is acknowledging that God can bring salvation because his love is an unconditional kind of love That's designed for us in our lives. It's a hard kind of love because it doesn't require anything in return because Jesus is the one paying the price. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But the wages of sin is death. There's a cost to sin. There's a cost to what sin is. And and here, Jesus says that sin cost has has been purchased by the fact that God so loved you. Now, not only is the word love found in this word father, but the word confidence. 
The Bible would teach us that this family relationship has a lot of confidence inside, a lot of trust is the word. So when he calls out to the father, and he calls out to the father in a such a way that the father then is the one who is the one who is in charge, the one who has a plan, the one who is at work here. And Jesus knows that. He knows that God has a plan in mind, that God is at work in all that he's doing to bring us to himself. Man, it's a marvelous plan that God loves you so much that he wants you to come to him, that he has a plan for you in order to have salvation in him, and that your life may be right, and that your guilt and your sin may be forgiven, may be cleansed, may be right with who he is. And so it's dependence upon the Father. And Jesus taught that the whole time. Remember when we pray the Lord's Prayer? How do we start? Our Father. It's, it's a term of love. It's a term of confidence that I'm coming to God because he is the one. And Jesus on the cross does the same thing. It, it has changed, you know, because Jesus was the one who was doing the forgiving of sins, remember? Let's go to number four. Number four simply says, by setting the stage for the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus begins his last assignment by setting the stage for the purpose of of the incarnation, and that word that we look at is the word forgive. He is the one who is forgiving. Now remember, Jesus has been the one who has forgiven sins. When Jesus was walking around, when he was talking to people, when he was around people, he would talk to them and say to them, your sins have been forgiven. And that's one of the reasons the scribes and Pharisees drove him crazy, right? Because only God can forgive sins, but here's Jesus forgiving sins. How can he do that? Yet on the cross, Jesus doesn't say, I forgive them. He says, Father, you forgive them. See, because it had changed. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus came, his purpose was the incarnation, God himself living among us. And now he was different. He was going to be hanging, not on this earth. The Bible teaches in another verse that it's when Jesus was on this earth, he had the authority on this earth as the son of God. But now it seems that he's not on this earth. Now it seems that he's in the middle that he's stuck on this, this tree, that he's on the cross. And, and so Jesus doesn't have that same authority to be able to say, I forgive them. Jesus turns that all authority over to the Father because the Father has the plan. And the plan is that the Son, who is going to be the purpose of dying for us, is now on the cross. The sacrifice is there. The Old Testament, when Abraham was there in the mountain with Isaac, his son, and he was going to sacrifice him, and he was stayed, his hand was stayed by God himself, and God said, look, Abraham, in the bush, there is a lamb. That's your sacrifice. God has provided the sacrifice in Jesus for you. So Jesus... Here in this says, simply, God, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that, he declares them guilty, you know. I mean, it says they don't know what they do, but inside that, the very fact that they have to be forgiven declares them guilty. Why else would they have to be forgiven if they were not guilty of what they were doing? And it's true for us. We are guilty of our sin, and our guilt can only be taken away by the Spirit of God through the incarnation of Christ and what he has done on the cross and being raised from the dead. And that guilt, that forgiveness, that forgiveness spreads out. And the, and the only way I could think of to illustrate that, that forgiving power is just imagine a wonderful 
beautiful lake in front of you that's crystal clear, that's so, that's so flat and so, so perfect. And a helicopter comes over that lake and, and there's a big rock at the end of the bottom of that hanging on a pole and that helicopter lets that rock go and it, it splashes right in the middle of that lake. Well, what do you see? You see a huge splash, but you begin to see the ripple. You begin to see it going not just from the center, but to the sides and farther out till it gets to the edges. And I, I read this and I say, Father, forgive, forgive? Forgive who? All of us. Forgive, forgive in such a way that the ripple effect started with the Romans, that started with the Jews, that started right there in that area, and it, and it rippled out to the Gentiles through Paul, and it rippled out through, through history, and down through history, some 2,000 years plus, it's rippled out to us, right? So that we understand this forgiveness that the Father has for us. Fifth thing, by acknowledging that the efforts of man are useless. Well, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they, no, 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 what they are doing. Who is that? Who is he talking about? Who's the them? Who's the they? Well, it could be the scribes and Pharisees. It could be the Jewish people. It could be the Romans who were, you know, nailing his hands to the cross. It could be Herod or Pilate could be any of those, and truthfully, probably was. All the way down to us. See, that's the ripple effect of sin. That's a ripple effect in which we live. And Jesus says, forgive them. Forgive them for what, we would say. We know the who here, it's them, they, us. But what is he forgiving us for? We've got to be careful there because it sounds like there's this blanket forgiveness of everything, and that's not what he's talking about because guilt is in our lives. But there are two things that happen in the what. One is the sin of just ignorance. And you have to admit that in some cases, as we see this, there was an ignorance here among these who were nailing him to the cross. Oh, they should have known that he was the Messiah. The Jews should have realized from who he was. And so there is that ignorance inside that, right? Who is he? We don't know. But as they are shown who he is, matter of fact, the thief or one of the Roman soldiers said at the end, surely this was the son of God. So he went from ignorance to understanding. But not just ignorance. I think ignorance is one of those that we can all talk about. But that's not our problem, you see. Our problem is not ignorance. Our problem is arrogance. Arrogance. We know what sin is, but we choose to do it anyway. We know what's wrong when we say the right things, act the wrong way, say things to people that are just ungodly, watch things on TV or watch things on the internet that we know are ungodly, respond in such a way that we know as a believer we should not do that. That is not what we should be doing. Yet we do it anyway. And that's what I believe is not the sin of ignorance, but the sin of arrogance. Where we say, we know better than God. We can take care of this. Or, or that statement to say, well, I got saved back when, so everything must be okay. Well, that's not how it works. Because when salvation changes our life, when, when Christ changes our life and the Holy Spirit lives in us, it changes us. It transforms us. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell us that, that we have been transformed. As 2 Corinthians tells us and 1 Corinthians tells us that we have the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ, then why don't we act like that? Why don't we why don't we respond to the things around us with not 
an indifference or not an I don't care or not a I'll do it however I want to do it, but an understanding that we're so arrogant that we think we can sin, we think we can do what we want to do, and we don't have to pay the price. Oh, sometimes it gets us into a mess. Sometimes we deal with consequences and circumstances and all the things that go along with our sin. And what's the first thing we do? We run to God and say, God, why did you let this happen? Well, it's not on God, it's on us. Because we have committed sins of arrogance, saying, God, we know what's best. We'll do what we want to do. And so when Jesus makes this statement from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Well, I think there's a great truth in that, obviously. There's also a side to say, we do know what we do sometimes. And we just choose. We just choose to ignore what God has said to us because we want to do it the way we want. Yet, yet in all that, he says, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgive you. Forgive me for all the stuff we do, for all the arrogance we have. Man, that's just the greatest news that we would ever be able to hear, ever be able to respond to, ever be able to tell anybody that their sins have been forgiven. They are not guilty of all the things because Christ has taken that upon himself, his body broken, his blood spilled. And in just a moment, we will share together in communion. We'll share together in the Lord's Supper. And the whole illustration is the understanding of God's body through Christ broken for our sin and his blood spilled for us. Now, the Bible teaches us in Corinthians that when we take the Lord's Supper, he tells us, first of all, that we should examine ourselves. So I want us to do that this morning. I want us to take a couple of minutes, whatever we need, and to examine ourselves personally. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Maybe there is something that the Holy Spirit is showing you in your life, an area of sinfulness, an area of arrogance, an area of doing it, whatever. I pray that the Holy Spirit would just show you that. And as he is showing you that, what that is, you you simply bring that to him and, and ask forgiveness. The Bible says that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as his children. As his children. Maybe you're here today and you're not a child of God. Maybe you've never received Christ as your personal Savior. The Bible says that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, we can be saved. And it's a simple prayer of salvation. It's not a magical thing or it doesn't have any, any special qualities to it other than your desire to become obedient. So a simple prayer to the Father. Father, forgive me. Father, I have sinned. Father, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Lord, help me to understand what that means as I commit my life to you. You can do that even now in this time as we examine our lives.